mornings. I'm Chris Oaks. And coming up today, Mayor Christina Mern will join us to recap the U.S. Conference of Mayors gathering in Washington, D.C., including a visit to the White House for a meeting with President Biden. And the city of Findlay is taking public input on possible updates to its zoning code. Also this morning, health experts caution the pandemic is not over, with the latest highly transmissible variant fueling a new wave of hospitalizations, even as some are raising renewed concerns over vaccine safety. And we have more help for those who have already given up on their New Year's resolutions. Details on a new program from the Mayo Clinic with the goal of weight loss for life. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition. For Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Not only are we looking for a huge snow event tomorrow, but uh, talk about uh, Armageddon. Today, scientists are set to reveal how close humanity is to the end of the world. The latest update of the Doomsday Clock is coming today. And this isn't like spring forward, fall back. No, 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 no. This is serious stuff. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, a nonprofit organization of world leaders and Nobel laureates, will announce how close the world is to ending. And they have done this for the past 75 years. This actually started by a group of scientists that worked on the Manhattan Project, the atomic uh, bomb. And then when they realized uh, what they had unleashed on the world, they uh, came up with the idea of this uh, doomsday clock to sort of shock our sensibilities into recognizing just how possible it is, if not likely it is, that humanity will one day make itself extinct by its own actions. The closer the clock is to hitting midnight, the closer the world is to doomsday. And currently, it sits at 100 seconds until midnight. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine is expected to push it even closer. This is the first update since 2020. So obviously, uh, the first update since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So that is what we are uh, fearing today. This is every day you have to have something to be worried about, something to uh, be concerned with. Well, doomsday is coming, and today, literally, doomsday is coming. That is the uh, story uh, of the day. Um, it seems, though, that Americans are less concerned about the doomsday clock and more concerned that the M&M spokescandies are going away, at least temporarily. Have you heard about this? M&M's made headlines last year when the company redesigned the green M&M uh, removing her white go-go boots and changing them to sneakers. And apparently this was a big controversy. I missed it, but apparently this was a big controversy. Now, one year later, the company has announced that the iconic M&M's characters, each a different color, will be put on the shelf, basically. They are pausing that advertising campaign indefinitely and apparently the animated m&ms or the cgi m&ms will be replaced with comedian and actress maya rudolph so i mean i if i could name any celebrity to replace the uh, m&ms why not maya rudolph according to cnn hard news from cnn 
The partnership with Ms. Rudolph has been in the works for a while. She will appear in the M&M's Super Bowl commercial here in a few weeks. And uh, some have criticized the brand for bowing to pressure uh, on the redesign of the green M&M. So apparently this one all uh, boils down to. So that's the uh, controversy. If that's not enough for you, if you need another controversy, how about this? And I have to admit, this does kind of drive me nuts. Consumers are pushing back about tip requests at drive throughs when was the last time you went through a drive-thru at a, at a restaurant or a coffee shop and have been asked for a tip? Um, drive throughs pickup windows, things like that, where there's a tip jar out there. Or when you pay with a card, you're presented with a receipt where they are encouraging you to leave a tip when you sign the receipt. Uh, some people say they are tired of being asked to leave a gratuity for a simple muffin or just a cup of coffee at the neighborhood bakery or something like that. According to Yahoo News, with more businesses starting to adopt digital payment methods, customers are automatically being prompted to leave a gratuity, sometimes as high as 30%, even at places where they normally wouldn't tip or even think about tipping. As tip requests have become more common, some businesses are advertising it in their job postings to lure in more workers, even though the extra money is not always guaranteed. So we're kind of being uh, guilted into tipping, and uh, if we don't, we are uh, hurting those uh, hourly workers who are probably being paid the tipped wage, which is much lower than... Uh, standard minimum wage uh, on the expectation that consumers will tip for just about everything. And I think this started back during the pandemic when people were tipping uh, service workers, so-called frontline workers who had to work during the pandemic at greater risk to themselves uh, in order to keep society moving um, during the uh, lockdowns, and uh, now it's become an expectation that we're going to tip everybody who provides any kind of service. And I have to admit, that does kind of uh, drive me nuts sometimes. But uh, for those workers who are in one of those industries where you are now expected to tip, or maybe you didn't before, I feel your pain, though. I understand why that's got to be incredibly frustrating for you. So I don't know that there's a real good solution to that. I'm just pointing it out. This is another one of those conundrums, another one of those controversies that we are facing in modern society. Maybe we wouldn't have to uh, worry about this, but for the whole idea of people having to tip, maybe we're not tipping as much. Maybe that's one of the reasons many people left having to tighten their budget. You know, that's the other thing about uh, about tipping. I understand if I don't tip, then the worker that is, you know, putting in, you know, working hard and doing their job as to the best of their ability and all of that, um, if I don't tip, then I'm kind of shortchanging their personal budget. 
Um, but if I tip everywhere, then I'm shortchanging my personal budget. So it's it's really tough. If you are among the millions who are tightening your budget these days, a new report from Tufts University shows that dollar stores are now the fastest growing food retailers in this country. Um, just shows to what extent Americans will go looking for a bargain. These discount stores have doubled the number of locations they have, especially in rural regions, and their footprint is growing in the remote south. And um, now the concern here, or among the concerns here, is nutrition policy might be taking a hit, as dollar stores typically sell foods that are higher in calories and lower in nutrients. That's true. You don't go to the dollar store for fresh veggies. Um, it's all highly processed, uh, shelf-stable foods predominantly. Uh, when you start to look at race and ethnicity, there are some implications about equity in terms of people's access to healthy food. This is according to a professor at uh, Tufts University who conducted this uh, research. I thought that was- so it, the, the headline in the story is that Dollar stores are the fastest growing food retailers in the country. You dig into it a little deeper and you see that there is more to the story. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would be uh, fond of saying. And uh, one other item here among the first things that you need to know this morning. Um, speaking of tight budgets and, and so on. What would you do to get a good-paying job? And there are a lot of jobs out there these days. They're not that difficult to find. But finding a good-paying job is another matter entirety, entirely. And so what would you do if you were presented the opportunity of getting a good-paying job? A new poll finds that many Americans are willing to lie to their potential employer about everything from their education to their references. Is it ever okay, is it ever permissible to lie to a potential employer? Now, I know what the employers will say, but I can imagine that there are a fair number of uh, would-be employees who are saying, you know, telling a little white one in order to get a job that I know that I'm able to do um, is a forgivable sin or should be a forgivable sin. So I'm sure that employers and potential employees have different viewpoints on this. But a new poll says that many Americans would be willing to lie to a potential employer. Uh, And what is driving people to stretch the truth in a job interview? Six in ten say rising costs and inflation. Um, 56.9% say... uh, Higher costs would motivate them to lie in a resume. The survey was commissioned by Standout CV, uh, which I think is a staffing platform. 55% of American workers have already lied on their resume at least once in their life. Be honest. Have you ever done that? Have you ever fudged it a little bit? Have you ever told uh, a slight untruth in a on a job application or on your resume. Uh, To kind of put this in perspective and a little context, up to 42.5 million people 
lied to get a new job in 2022 alone. I mean, if that number holds, if 55% of American workers uh, say they lied on their resume at least once in their life, that means up to 42.5 million people may have lied to get a new job in 2022 alone. More men admit to lying their way into a new job at 59.9% compared with 50.6% of the women. So even women, um, more than half, uh, said that they have lied in order to get a, a job at some point. So it just raises that question. It's something to chew on here this morning. Is it ever permissible to lie in order to secure a job? And I'm not talking George Santos kind of lying. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Here. We're talking about, uh, you know, maybe fudging on your GPA a little bit or saying you have uh, experience on a certain or piece of software or a certain computer system than you actually have. Maybe uh, saying you have more experience than you actually have or have uh, worked in an industry slightly longer than you have or filling in one of the gaps on your resume by stretching the numbers by just a little bit. You know, little white lies. Uh, is it ever permissible? Kind of interesting. Something to think about this morning. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Mostly cloudy today with a high of 34. It'll be cloudy tonight, a low of 30. Forecasters say a winter storm will impact the area on Wednesday. Several inches of snow are possible, along with a light glaze of ice. The wintry precipitation could impact the Wednesday morning commute, and travel will become more difficult during the day as more snow falls. Remember, you can always get the latest forecast, school closings, business and community cancellations, and road alerts on our website. Children's Mentoring Connection of Hancock County held an open house and ribbon cutting to celebrate their new location in Findlay. We spoke with Executive Director Stacy Shaw about the benefits of moving to the Family Center at 1800 North Blanchard Street. So we've always had really good community partners and really we couldn't do what we do and connect our volunteers to our community partners without them. And this kind of just takes things one next step further in the fact that we're here where many of our clients already utilize some of the services. Stacy says they're looking for volunteer mentors and taking applications for kids to be in the program. Get more on the website. The trial of Larry Householder, who once served as Speaker of the Ohio House, is underway. Householder is accused of racketeering in a $1 billion bailout for two nuclear power plants in Ohio. This is at the expense of Ohio taxpayers. In return, prosecutors say he received nearly $61 million in campaign cash, some of which was used for personal affairs. Householder is pleading not guilty to these charges. Onan's Tino Ramos reporting. Get more on the website. The Ohio State Highway Patrol is looking for men and women who are looking to make a difference in their communities. Those interested must go through a selective process to become cadets with the patrol, including a physical and written test, among other requirements. Anyone interested in a career with the patrol should contact the Finley District Recruitment Team, and we have their contact information on our website. The Hancock Park District will be holding a winter river hike on Sunday. During the approximate two-mile hike, people will look for wildlife and learn about the history of ice harvesting on the Blanchard River. Get more information about this winter hike and other upcoming park programs on our website. I'm Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. 
Now, our cover story this morning, Finley Mayor Christina Mern is with us uh, once again. You recall last week she was in the nation's capital for the U.S. Conference of Mayors winter gathering. And uh, that included uh, last Friday a visit to the White House. We're meeting with uh, President Biden. Mayor Mern, thanks very much for uh, being with us. Yeah, uh, thanks this for month. having me, Chris. You've been to the White House before. <laughs> this is kind of, this is all old hat for you. Oh, my gosh. You know what? Um, so this is... I guess my third or fourth time now, the fourth time at the White House, second time, you know, like in the East Room, mm-hmm. and um, I guess third time with the president. I've, so I've been uh, in 2020 as part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors Winter Meeting. Right. Uh, the, the Trump administration invited uh, mm-hmm. the mayors. So this is a normal thing. They typically yeah. invite the mayors at the end of the conference. and. But it's always really cool. It's, it's always an honor. I mean, it you know, is. obviously yeah. uh, you and President Biden have policy <laughs> disagreements, to say the, the le- least. But uh, it is an, an honor to be invited by the president to go to the White House. It so. is. You know, when I was thinking of it last night as I was kind of scrolling back through my pictures, you know, I'm sitting 20 feet away from the president of the United States. I yeah. look up and I'm looking at George Washington's portrait and mm-hmm. you know we have Dolly Madison's yeah. portrait in the room and it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like an audience with the pope you don't have to be <laughs> catholic to appreciate just how significant that yeah, is it yeah it is you know it just to think of all the discussions that have ha- been had in that room to mm-hmm. think of the people sure. that have visited before me it is an extreme honor um, and you're right. Yes. You know, I definitely don't agree with uh, many of the president's policies, but I, I also appreciated that, you know, um, back when the Trump administration had us to the White House, that many of my colleagues that also had differences in opinion with President Trump mm-hmm. also attended. I think it's yeah. a sign of respect, as it should be. And uh, to that end, it actually uh, brings up uh, a larger point with respect to the U.S. Conference of Mayors and really all of your interactions with federal leaders that sometimes you have to work with both sides uh, to get things done at the at the municipal level. Yeah, you know, I think to govern, you have to work together. Mm -hmm. There's no one. We don't all agree on anything. Yeah. You know, me and my husband don't agree on anything. (laughs) So I don't know how we all think that we're going to be able to agree on significant policy. That may not be in fashion in politics now, but you really (laughs) have to do that. You know, when you're a mayor, uh, when you're talking about bringing federal policy down to the local level. Definitely. We, We joke frequently with mayors that there are three types of people. There are Republicans, there are Democrats, and there are mayors, uh, because we ultimately are responsible for getting things done. And, you know, I think that that's a message that we give to our state and federal colleagues frequently. Um, But I think it's also something we remind ourselves on a daily basis that we need to, you know, support our um, policies and the platform that our citizens, you know, supported us on, but also recognize that we have to be able to see the big picture and, and work with each other to get things done. And at the state and federal level, that becomes increasingly more difficult because it is increasingly more polarized and very complex topics. Um, But I think it also provides a great opportunity for our, you know, our federal government to say, where can we find common ground and stop stonewalling and playing politics with people's lives? And also, it is an opportunity. I mean, and this is maybe a bit of the cynic in me. It is an opportunity for those at the federal level to score points uh, with their constituents come re-election time to say, look what I uh, have done and gotten done for your community. So do you leverage that uh, when you, you know, definitely. with you know, I, I think being able to actually show what you have accomplished rather than I just stopped the other side from doing X, Y, Z, which mm-hmm. 
don't don't get me wrong, there is some defense that needs to be played at times. Yeah. Um, but I do think that we are hearing more and more um, around the country and from constituents here in town, and you know around, that people are tired of politicians um, playing games and trying to score political points. And I'm going to be this, you know, cynic for a yeah. second, fundraising um, on fear, mm. and I think that that happens far too often at the national level. Now, all of that being said, uh, and again, when we're talking about- you really took this conversation a very different direction than I expected. Uh, (laughs) The the U.S. Conference of Mayors uh, has at times, uh, and and they put out policy statements on on various Mm -hmm. issues, and I don't know that the winter meeting is one where they do a lot of that. It's usually the annual meeting, which is a different time of the year, Mm -hmm. but uh, sometimes, quite often, in fact, those policy statements take on a noticeable progressive bent shall we say yeah and that could be because uh the many of the largest cities in the country uh have democrat uh administrations um how do you re- uh, reconcile that as a member of the u.s conference of mayors when that organization's official policy runs contrary to your own personal philosophy yeah, well, there are two main things. One, I voice my issues on the policies mm-hmm. when they are being discussed. So each mayor is on one standing committee, which are the committees that put out the different um, resolutions at the summer meeting. And um, my committee jo- laughs at me because I always you have, like have to pull them for consideration. Otherwise, they're unanimously passed. Um, and I have issue with that too, because I, I think that there are too many resolutions that it's difficult for mayors to read through them all. Mm-hmm. So I'm on one committee. I get to read through all of ours and, and provide feedback and make you know amendments on the floor to make them more palatable. Um, but I also receive a hundred other resolutions that in a three-day period, yeah. I have to read and then they have the ability for us to go on and vote no. So um, you know, I try to go in and vote no on, you know, any ones I disagree with or ones that I didn't have an opportunity to review. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say that as I'm speaking with some of my other Republican colleagues that are part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, um, we are we are few in number, but we think that it's really important that we engage and say, hey, you know what? I know you're looking at it this way, but you're missing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, you know, they, they may not agree with us, but at least we're sharing our viewpoint. But I so I, we're trying to figure out how we organize a little bit better. And some of that may be reaching out to other organizations to help us provide insight and resolutions to educate our colleagues that are getting one side of the story. Um, you know, I'm on, I'm on the energy committee now. So mm-hmm. I was on child health and human services. And now I've, I've moved over to energy because I feel like this needs more of my time because it's the topic of, you know, the day. Mm-hmm. And I also tend to know a, a decent amount of energy and may yeah. care a, a good deal about it because of our community. But I think there's a lot of opportunity to educate mayors. Okay, you're talking about going electric. Well, first of all, our infrastructure is clearly not meant for that. Right. Two, the energy right. is being generated by something else. I'm not saying I, I'm a you know yes and type of energy policy person. Mm. I think it's great to have other alternative sources. I think we need to be looking at ways to make our energy cleaner, mm. and you know being good environmental stewards. But this the thought process that we're getting rid of you know fossil fuels in the next you know 15 years is just asinine. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, having said all <laughs> that, uh, real quickly, what's your takeaway from the uh, winter meeting? Yeah, that we have a, a lot of really important issues that are going on right now. And 
Uh, you know, I would love to say that I, I found a couple of like magic items to take away, but right now it's a lot of every community is facing the same. You know, we had a couple presentations on mental health and a drug addiction that talked about, and I believe the statistic was that every five minute an American dies from um, fentanyl overdose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's a real issue. Our, I know our local law enforcement are doing a, a phenomenal job to try to address that as much here locally as well as working with our social services to try to get people into treatment and try to mitigate, you know, loss of life. Um, but it's not a problem that arrived overnight. It's not one that's going to go away overnight. Um, and I know that in Hancock County, we are well positioned to address this issue working together. So I'm feeling positive about that. You know, mental health and homelessness, again, was exacerbated by the pandemic. I think we're seeing it more locally, visibly, um, because we have been tearing down some of the properties and clearing out areas where people were previously living. Um, So I know we kind of are seeing ebbs and flows of that, but it's something that we are working very hard to address. I actually worked to set up a task force led by Rob Martin, service safety director, to work with our local agencies to kind of address our unsheltered individuals. Um, But, you know, it's a lot of good things. You know, I was uh, happy to hear the president talk about, um, you know, funding the police and making sure that they are equipped with the resources that they need to do their job. I think there are other actions, obviously, that need to be taken at the state and federal levels and at some of the other communities to really appropriately address it. But I'm proud with how Finley is working. And then the final thing is is housing. Um, that continues to be an issue. But um, again, I think we have all the right tools in our tool chest. I think it's just how we're using them. And I think coming out of the pandemic, the city of Finley is going to be very competitive to try to get more development occurring here and tell our story on why folks should invest. And I guess that uh, kind of leads to uh, this local issue that I wanted to ask you about since uh, we have you here. The city of Findlay is looking at updating uh, its zoning code. You're mm-hmm. in the process yeah. now of uh, soliciting public input uh, for this. Uh, give us kind of the long and short of uh, the impetus for this, why it's necessary, what you were looking for from the general public here. Yeah. So, you know, the zoning code really is kind of constantly being reviewed. We're, we're always making sure that we, one, have clear, concise and legal language to make sure that we are not causing any ambiguity for developers or property owners. Um, the impetus for this was I was having some conversations with surrounding properties. They may be interested in annexing to the city of Finley. And there was kind of two different aspects of it. One was related to large agricultural properties. There was a, a agricultural property between them and the city of Finley. And they're like, well, I can't be annexed until I'm contiguous. And right now that property is a barrier. Well, we didn't have the ability, and we don't currently, and are, but are discussing and proposing having an agricultural zoning classification, which would provide the ability for properties to say, I want to continue to farm. I want to have the flexibility that that affords me, but am willing to annex into the city if that can still be protected. Otherwise, the properties would be grandfathered in as their existing use, but would have to designate as residential, commercial, industrial upon annexation to the city of Finley. The other one was um, the PUDs, which is a planned use development. That's something that we actually had 10, 12 years ago. It wasn't being used very often, um, but then we created the planned mixed use development and planned residential development. We felt like going back to the planned use development was going to be more helpful in our community because it provides flexibility, which is a little strange where you're actually creating 
a specific zoning classification, like say PUD MERN would be, you know, a property that is a larger development that you work with staff and the commission to determine what that layout of the property is going to be. So that may give some flexibility on setbacks in certain areas or density or lot coverage. Um, And so it gives just more flexibility for the community and developers to be able to determine what is kind of a best use of that property while also making sure that we're protecting the community development and the city overall. The uh, proposals mm-hmm. uh, are up on the city's webpage. Yep. You mentioned you're looking for public input yep. right now. So we, we're kind of getting, we're going to have multiple rounds of public feedback. This is kind of a pre-process feedback, if you were. Mm-hmm. We've discussed it with the Planning and Zoning Committee of City Council. But if you fo- go to finleyohio.gov, um, on the cover page, and uh, we have information where you can review the full text as well as a summary document and provide feedback. We're going to do that for a couple of weeks, and I think through the end of next week. Um, That will allow us then to collect that feedback and have discussion with the committee to see if there's anything we want to tweak before it actually moves forward for kind of formal hearings and review and um, eventually, hopefully, approval. So more to come on that and uh, more to come. uh, This is maybe a bit of a teaser, more to come on the larger issue that you were uh, talking about. So we'll uh, look forward to (laughs) We have a lot going on on the next couple months. (laughs) Uh, Again, uh, Finley Mayor Christina Mern with us uh, this morning. Mayor Mern, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Well, health experts want us to know that the pandemic is not over. COVID cases and hospitalizations are on the rise once again with the latest Omicron strain, XBB 1.5, gaining traction. Despite the ongoing post-holiday surge, many Americans, though, still do not see COVID as a present-day threat. And moreover, some are even raising renewed concerns over vaccine safety. Dr. Scott Steinecker is an epidemiologist and member of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Dr. Steinecker, first of all, what do people need to know about this latest COVID variant? Let's start there. The newest COVID variant, uh, the Omicron XBB 1.5 variant, is now accounts for about half of the amount of, of COVID that we see. Uh, we know that COVID is dangerous and people who are unvaccinated are about nine times more likely to die than if uh, when they get COVID than those who are vaccinated and boosted. We know that updated vaccines are available, uh, that they protect us and they also protect those around us and they reduce the risk of long COVID uh, and they're widely available and free. Now, as I'm sure you know, later this week, an FDA panel will convene to discuss a possible update to the composition of COVID vaccines. Explain what that means in plain English, because some have interpreted that as reason for concern about the efficacy and especially the safety of the vaccine in its current form. The mRNA vaccines have actually been in development for nearly 20 years. Uh, they have been produced to be able to combat SARS-1 and MERS-CoV, Ebola, many other uh, diseases, and I think are a real promising new area uh, for us to address disease. The safety is, I think, has a long track record. Not only over 11 billion doses given uh, in the world so far, with just the COVID vaccine, uh, but uh, you have all of these other vaccines that have been studied over time. 
As we move into the bivalent vaccines, we're looking at taking some of the original strain and we're taking some of the, of the newer Omicron strains, the uh, new instruction set that will produce antibodies against these and uh, help train our immune systems to be able to fight off not only what we've seen before, but what we expect to be coming in and coming back. Uh, year after year. So a change in the composition, if I'm understanding correctly, the change in the composition of a vaccine uh, is not uh, a reason for alarm. It's actually to be expected. It's similar to what we see with, say, the flu vaccine from one year to the next as the strains that are circulating change. That's right. Once you understand the basic uh, way the process works, the way it works in the, uh, the immune system and in the body, uh, you don't have to do uh, 60 or 80,000 people uh, with, a, with a clinical trial to see what, uh, what the dangers would be by this new vaccine. For flu, we tested against a couple of hundred people, make sure there's nothing that we don't expect, and then we roll it out for the general population. Mm. I think the same is going to be true for the the updated uh, COVID vaccines. As Omicron changes, we need to change. So let me ask about a couple of other uh, common uh, questions that I'm sure you hear all the time. If I uh, if someone has recently contracted COVID, if we've recently had COVID, does that mean we still need to get the up- updated vaccine or is there some measure of natural immunity there? Well, I think there is a degree of natural immunity and we'd recommend that people wait about three months before you get the updated vaccine. But we also know that about 20% of people are going to go on and develop some component of long COVID where they have the signs and symptoms of infection last for more than three months, whether it's brain fog or fatigue or muscle pain uh, or just inability to concentrate. Uh, and we also know that in our about 650 people in our long COVID clinic that we can make about a third of them better just by giving them the vaccines. Uh, so I think that that really helps a lot of people. And again, you might just skate through COVID with uh, just a little bit of a cough or, or literally no symptoms and still go on to develop long COVID. And along those same lines, what should someone do if they do test positive for COVID? For people who test positive for COVID, uh, you've got about a five-day window where you're going to be able to uh, get uh, see your physician and get put on medication. Uh, we have a couple of medications that are helpful at reducing the signs and symptoms, getting you back to work, uh, and also uh, prevent you from being hospitalized or, or end up in the intensive care unit. So we have Molnupiravir and we have Paxlovid. Paxlovid, I think, is the more powerful of the two. Molnupiravir can be given to those people who can't take Paxlovid, uh, but you still have to get into that that initial five day on from the from the onset of symptoms for it to really do any good. Uh, that kind of speaks to the fact that you know, as we know, two years ago when all of this started, the scariest part of COVID nineteen was the fact that doctors really had no way to treat patients uh, and avoid uh, those severe cases. Fast forward to January of twenty twenty three, and we do now have treatments available for those uh, positive cases. In addition to those pills, we also have the IV remdesivir, and although our current monoclonal antibodies are for the most part uh, um, have been evaded by Omicron, 
there's a couple of new ones that are in the pipeline that we're really hopeful are going to provide us yet additional weapons to fight COVID. COVID's a two-part disease. There's the initial viral infection, and then there's the evil that it does in our bodies. And that can increase our risk of having stroke and heart attack and other neurologic problems. Uh, Boy, just a really wicked virus. So, uh, again, the goal is to avoid it if you can, and that remains uh, the best avenue for that is the uh, vaccine. And just to recap, the latest uh, vaccine, this updated vaccine that we have now, uh, will protect against this latest variant, uh, this XBB 1.5? These vaccines don't state that they're going to keep you from developing any signs or symptoms of COVID, although they really do a pretty darn good job for about 60 to 90 days. Uh, But their goal of being vaccinated is to keep you from getting so sick that you end up needing hospital care, the ICU, or, or even death. And again, just to, I don't mean to harp on this, but I know that there are still, there's still a lot of uh, apprehension. And, and again, you know this as well as anyone, uh, a fair amount of apprehension and even fear of a vaccine that is still, uh, to many, relatively new. So how are the dangers of getting COVID, how do those compare to the side effects of the vaccine? With well over 11 billion doses given of the COVID vaccine and uh, other kinds of mRNA vaccines that have been given Mm -hmm. uh, for other diseases, we've got a pretty darn good track record to know what these these vaccines will do. We know that the vaccine itself only lasts in your body about 24 to 48 hours before it's broken down and and trained your immune system, delivered the instruction set. Uh, So there's really nothing that resides in the body. Uh, we also know that if you're going to have effects, you're going to see them relatively quickly within, uh, within a month or two. Uh, it's not like something's going to pop up a year, two years, five years down the road. Mm-hmm. So we know what these vaccines do. And most of those side effects are going to be self-limited, uh, minor, uh, and even for the more serious reactions, most people are going to resolve without any long-term problems. However, from the virus, boy, uh, causing heart attack and stroke and, and other nerve damage. Uh, this, is a, this is a wicked virus with long-lasting signs and symptoms, and long COVID is uh, very, very significant. We see a lot of people with that, even if they originally had only mild disease to start with. Again, Dr. Scott Steinecker is an epidemiologist, a member of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America with us this morning talking about the latest variants and uh, the updated vaccines and why this is still so important. Dr. Steinecker, thanks very much for taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. You're so very welcome. Thank you, Chris. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. So, uh, an unhappy employee at a uh, restaurant, uh, at a pub in the UK, decided to get even with his boss. Uh, Tom Williams uh, was a uh, chef in the uh, pub's kitchen, and after a dispute with his employer over holiday pay... Uh, he decided that he would take matters into his own hands and released 20 cockroaches into 
<laughs> the kitchen. Oh, my. Um, Mr. Williams left his job at the Royal William Pub over the pay dispute and reportedly returned to release the insects. Uh, the roaches in question were non-native to the area and are used to feed pets like snakes. And so, <laughs> so I think that probably got him into trouble as much as anything else. Uh, staff contacted environmental health and pest control and had to close up the pub. Um, now Mr. Williams faces charges, including intent to cause criminal damage. Uh, according to uh, law enforcement, there was a legitimate dispute here. However, Mr. Williams made a poor decision to go about getting reconciliation. <laughs> I love the way they uh, they put things. It's very, they're experts at understatement in uh, Great Britain. It was a poor decision to go about getting reconciliation. To say the least. My goodness. Uh, in Chicago, uh, authorities are hunting for a missing person. Um, what makes this unusual is the missing person is already dead. Apparently, a corpse vanished after a funeral van that it was stored in was stolen. Uh, the van was stolen outside the Collins and Stone Funeral Home in Rockford, Illinois, uh, the van later found abandoned about 90 miles away in Chicago, but the body was nowhere to be found. Now, that's weird. You would think that the thieves, whoever they were, would have kept the vehicle or and, and dropped off the body, but it's the other way around, apparently. Police have not yet found any suspects or released any information or uh, on the identity of the deceased. But be on the lookout. <laughs> Alrighty then. <clears throat> the residents of a mobile home park in Coon Rapids, Minnesota are living in fear because apparently a turkey has taken it upon itself to become the neighborhood menace. Residents say the wild bird has been attacking people to the point of drawing blood, chasing cars through the neighborhood and being a downright pest. One resident of the mobile home park, Emily Ashleston, said the community named the bird Reggie when it first appeared last year uh, after the uh, pardoned turkey in Freebirds because we thought it was silly. It showed up right after Thanksgiving, the turkey did. Uh, but the, uh, the bird has long worn out its welcome. This turkey, she says, has literally taken over our life. It attacks me every single day, follows me, goes up my stairs, tries to get into my house. When I leave my car, it, when I leave in my car, it follows my car. Uh, Rachel Gross says the bird is not afraid of cars and is known for climbing up on people's vehicles and staying there. She said it rode with me to Chipotle one time. <laughs> Residents are hoping the turkey trots elsewhere. And have been following advice from the state's Department of Natural Resources to make their mobile home park uninvited, uninviting to their unwelcome guest. But Reggie, so far, has not gotten the message. Those living in the neighborhood hope the wild bird is caught and relocated. They don't want it killed, they just want it relocated far, far away. <laughs> <clears throat> mm. 
If not, I would think probably they've got Thanksgiving, the community Thanksgiving solved next year. Uh, let's see here. Did you hear about this? A crazy story. A man who was adrift in a sailboat in the Caribbean for more than three weeks said he survived by eating ketchup, garlic granules, and stock cubes. Elvis Francois was swept out to sea in December while making repairs to his uh, sailboat off the island of St. Martin, uh, which is where he lives. He said he had no other food, and he, he was uh, swept away, set out to, to sea, and apparently uh, he was working on his sail, and and there was a, an issue with the boat, so it's not like he could turn around and just sail back. He was stranded out in the middle of the ocean, and he said he had no other food other than ketchup packets, garlic granules, and stock cubes. So he whipped up a makeshift soup. True story. Uh, he finally managed to alert a passing plane by signaling with a mirror, you know, reflecting the sun's rays, and the, uh, the pilot caught... Uh, a glimpse of the uh, stranded boat and uh, a container ship assisted him to the Colombian port city of Cartagena 24 days after he was swept out to sea. So, wow, it's got a happy ending, but that's crazy. Uh, let's see. But at least it has a happy ending. How about this for a happy ending? A family dog that went missing in Rhode Island over a year ago has been found in Florida. The eight-pound Yorkie named Bella went missing from her yard in Middletown, Rhode Island in October of 2021. Her owner, Melissa Reynolds, said they didn't think that Bella was still alive because her neighborhood is known for having a lot of coyotes in the area, so they assumed the worst. But last week, Ms. Reynolds says, they got a call saying that Bella had somehow been located in Florida, where she had been living with a couple in St. Augustine. Apparently, the couple took her to a vet who scanned Bella's microchip and discovered her true identity. The new owners called the Reynolds family as soon as they found out to say that they found their dog crazy as that and kudos to the new owners for being you know up front and honest and getting bella back to her previous home because you know they could have just kept their mouth shut and probably no one would have been the wiser and uh, lastly in the broken news this morning is a terrific story marine rescuers in florida recently came together to save a stranded dolphin which was spotted in clearwater creek Uh, First spotted on January 1st, and the dolphin apparently seemed unable to find its way out of the creek and back to the ocean. So rescuers were uh, concerned about that, also concerned that too much human interaction would impact its ability to live in the wild. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, the Fisheries Service of NOAA, decided to create a human chain to guide the dolphin back to the exit of the creek. And it worked. The dolphin followed along the uh, chain of people and found the inlet of the creek and back he went into the, he or she went uh, into the ocean. 
The Clearwater Marine Aquarium said in a post on Facebook, we're thankful to the residents in the area who worked with us to help protect this animal. Isn't that sweet? That wild. That poor dolphin. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the news. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Road work, detours, traffic backups, and delays. It can get a little frustrating and confusing, but we can help keep you ahead of the game. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek. Just check out the Traffic Center at WFIN.com and you'll know where the trouble spots are in Findlay and Hancock County. Download Waze, use it whenever you're driving, and join our drive team to help inform others of traffic issues. The WFIN Traffic Center, powered by Waze, and available at WFIN.com. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. This is really interesting. Researchers say that churches in this country are closing at a record rate as congregations dwindle across the country and a younger generation of Americans kind of move away from Christianity altogether, even as faith continues to dominate American politics. This is according to LifeWay Research. About 4,500 Protestant churches closed in 2019. Now, about 3,000 new churches opened, but that is a net loss of 1,500 churches. The first time the number of churches in the U.S. has not grown since they started studying the topic. Um, They say the pandemic sped up Uh, what was already a broader trend. So did you set a weight loss resolution for 2023 that you have already given up on? Well, if so, you are not alone. By the third week of January, most people have abandoned their goals. But what if I told you that weight loss for life is easier than you think? Dr. Dr. Donald Hensrud is an associate professor of preventive medicine and nutrition in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and the medical director for the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Dr. Hensrud, what is, I mean, I guess there are all kinds of reasons, uh, really, but what is uh, the the main cause or the, the leading cause why people are unable to lose weight and keep it off? Why is this so doggone difficult for so many people? You're right. It is complex, and there are multiple, multiple causes. In order to manage weight better, we think there are a couple of key features. One is having a good plan, and another is approaching it in the right way, not focusing on a long-term weight loss goal, but focusing on overall health. The Mayo Clinic diet is more than a diet. It's a lifestyle change program where people can not only manage their weight, but improve their health, and most importantly, feel better long-term. It's realistic, it's practical, and it's enjoyable enough to be sustainable so people can do this for a lifetime, not just a a quick fix type program. Okay, so give us some examples here. What are uh, some of the steps and the tips that you offer to people to improve their health and make some of those lifestyle changes that you talk about? Well, there are a number of them, but a couple of quick ones. One is eat more. Many programs are overly restrictive. They're based on Uh, a limited amount of food that people lose weight, but it's tough to maintain that. So we recommend generous amounts of fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables in many different good dishes. 
healthy choices in the other food groups, whole grain carbohydrates, heart-healthy fats. There's a lot of great food out there, and people can enjoy it while they're managing weight. Another key feature is changing habits. We get caught up in the same old habits, what we're eating, our activity patterns, and people underestimate their ability to change these habits. The Mayo Clinic diet is divided into two phases, lose it and live it. The lose it phase is a quick weight loss plan where people change habits suddenly, but all the habits are safe and healthy, and if people do these changes, it empowers them, and the average amount of weight loss is 6 to 10 pounds during this period of time. Also joining us uh, this morning is certified nutrition coach uh, Donna, uh, Donna Borger. Donna, you know the struggle because you have experienced yourself. You've been there. So what has been your experience with this new Mayo Clinic diet? You know, it's been extremely enjoyable. I've loved every step of it because, as Dr. Hensrud said, when I saw the results and felt the results of eating better and making better, healthier choices, I knew it was something that I wanted to continue The program that the new Mayo Clinic diet has is unlike any other. The program is part of a larger mission to inspire hope and promote whole health, and that's what I needed in my life. I needed accountability. I needed something that was an education for me in regards to nutrition. I needed to be taught how to have a different mindset when it came to food and my eating habits. So I can hear a lot of people kind of nodding their heads saying, yep, I, I hear you. Uh, so I want to understand the, the first step in this, so the first part of it is an online assessment. What are, uh, what are some of the, the things that go into that? How does that work? So we have an online program. It has many different features. It has trackers where people can track their uh, diet intake, their food intake, their activity habits. It has an online support group. The first thing it has is a diet assessment, and people can get an idea of of their baseline, where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things that we found was that people are interested in improving their health is one of the top reasons to undertake this, and that's music to our ears. We're all about health at Mayo Clinic, and we think it's possible both to manage your weight and improve your health while feeling good when you're doing it. So, uh, Donna, again, as a uh, certified nutrition coach, talk about these assessment tools and how that helps you then. You know, the assessment tools help me because I can show my clients that the accountability and to be able to stay on track is there. They just need that support. And the Mayo Clinic definitely has that through all sorts of facets, including Facebook groups, and online coaching, which is new this year for the program. So uh, where can we get more information uh, about this and, uh, and learn more about how this works and, um, again, maybe get started on, on rebooting those resolutions that we made three weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, and perhaps have already sort of uh, fallen off the wagon, as it were? It's very easy. People can just go to mayoclinicdiet.com or just search Mayo Clinic Diet online. They can access our book, our journal, uh, our online program, and we even have a cookbook, Cook Smart, Eat Well, that can help people uh, learn some tips about making uh, quick and healthy food and apply it in their program. Again, Dr. Donald Hensrud uh, is with the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and the uh, Mayo Clinic Healthy Healthy Living Program, certified nutrition coach uh, Donna Borger with us uh, as well. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. 
And that will finish up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. And that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Raise the Bar, Hancock County, launching a new program to help the unemployed and underemployed adult workforce in the community. Executive Director Tricia Valesque will join us. Plus, evidence that Russian hackers are attacking U.S. nuclear sites. That doesn't send a chill down your spine. I don't know what will. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.